we're going to try to do a little bit of review and then dive in a little bit into the sacraments and the baptism just a little bit and then pick up next time and finish those off and, uh, and be flying. So um, I don't, what I don't want to do is start the sacraments out of the context of the catechism and what we've been talking about. Of course, this is our third part, if you will, in this series because we've already done an introduction to the catechism. We did a whole section on the creed in the in the catechism. Is it cold here, guys? No. Cool. Oh, okay. Um, we uh, we went through the creeds uh, quickly through the creed. Now we're going to go through the sacraments. Um, the catechism itself is divided into what five parts? Four parts. Sorry. The creed. What comes next? What we're doing right now: the sacraments. Then prayer. Or I'm sorry, the moral life, right? Life in Christ. The moral life, and then Christian prayer. Okay, so it's a, it's the whole catechism is designed as an introduction to the faith in such a way that we talk about first in the introduction what faith is, then what we're to believe in the creed. Okay. Then once we believe how we enter in and receive the life of God okay, in the sacraments, how that life of God comes alive in our life, in the moral life, right? and ultimately when we turn back to God then and communicate ourselves to Him in prayer. So as to cover the whole of the Christian life in that way. Um, so we began in our first series on the introduction, which was actually supposed to cover the introduction and the creed and never got there. We just did the introduction over three or four sessions. And we talked about what faith is. What is it? What is the nature of faith? When we say, I believe in church, what are we saying? What does it mean to have faith or to say you believe something? I know I've been taught in a while, guys, who... I'm not a lecturer, so I'm just going to ask you questions and you're going to respond. So go. Doesn't <laughs> kind of mean that that's who I am, what I am because of what I believe. What? Uh, that's a that's a definitely a conclusion to or a result of what happens when I believe. So we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. What's the act of faith look like? It's an intellectual ascent. Okay. And we form our lives around, right? It, it, what are we assessing to? A truth that's, what? Well, okay, something that's presented, a set of propositions that we assent and say they're true. Okay, so notice that there's one, the believer, right? There's the things I'm believing, but there's always the one who's communicating that belief to me, or communicating that reality to me. It's almost a three-stage process. I believe someone who knows. Okay, I always, in faith, believe someone who has seen or knows something firsthand, which I could no way, in no way on my own see or know. It is never first-hand knowledge of something. When you have first-hand knowledge of something, faith goes out the door. And that's why we... we believe as Catholics that in heaven the virtue of faith will fall away as will the virtue of hope right because both of those things will be fulfilled okay 
Good. So when we say in the catechism, we believe, what do we believe? What is, what is ultimately, as Catholics, what do we believe? You have to say one thing. What is it? Christ. All right. Magisterium. God exists. Okay, but what is this point? What is this thing that we're believing? Look in your catechisms. It's ultimately the revelation of God himself. Trinity. So, yeah, the Trinity. And someone said Christ. And yes, it is the face of Christ who reveals to us the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay? He says, I alone in the Gospel of John, I have seen. Okay? I have seen, and now it is our job to place ourselves, humble ourselves to him, to accept what he alone has seen. And when we do that, what happens to us? Okay, but what did you say earlier? It becomes part of who we are. Notice, faith is, is one type of knowledge. And in all knowledge, I've said this to you guys before, in all knowledge, the thing I know changes who I am. I think it was Aristotle who said, knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. You guys have heard me say that before. Knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. Knowledge transforms who I am such that I can now close my eyes. I can be apart from the thing out in the real that I know. And I can close my eyes and have it within me. I'm transformed by what I know. Okay? St. Thomas Aquinas says, the believer stands in exactly the same relationship to that which the other knows. It's a little complicated, but look at my three X's. The believer stands in exactly the same relationship to that which the other knows and which he does not know as it does to that which he knows himself. Now, what's he saying? When I know something, or when I have faith, when I believe, I am given the gift to be to enter into the place of the one I'm believing in. In other words, I stand in his shoes and I begin to see through his eyes what I otherwise could never know on my own. Okay? So, we believe the creed. Ultimately, the creed is kind of that, the nuts and bolts, the key propositions of what we adhere to. But there's something more to it than that. There's something more to the creed than simply propositions or formulas. Something is revealed to us in the creed that is beyond something outside of us. And what is it? Turn your catechism to 1064. Yeah, paragraph 1064. If you guys don't remember how to use your catechism, or if you don't have one, I've got extras back there. 1064. Paragraph 1064, not page number. Paragraph. The paragraph numbers are those big, bold numbers, right? All along the way there. There's another catechism. Oh, I've got one. I've got more. Oh, you got to have it. For those that walked in late, I am I am deadly ill tonight, and um, so one way to go, right?
even his clip. It's over your Skip the paragraph there and go down to the quote just under the paragraph. I, when we were covering this section, we, we dealt with this. May your creed be for you as a mirror. Look at yourself in it and see if you believe everything you say you believe. Uh-oh. And rejoice in your faith every day. St. Augustine. 1064. Paragraph 1064. What do you think he means by that? May the creed. What do we say in the creed? What do we profess? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then we tack onto that the church. Okay, but ultimately, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he says, let the creed be to you as a mirror. Why? What's he mean by that? What's that? Look inside. Why? That's true, but I think he's saying something more than that. He's not just simply saying, when you say the creed, stop just repeating the words. I mean, there's something to that. But he's not saying, just really say it. There's something more to it. Wasn't he saying, yeah, isn't he saying that just as we're supposed to, or we're supposed to be reflections of God in our absolute fulfillment, that, that if we really believe this, then we're seeing him in ourselves. I mean, we look there and we okay. see him. Yeah. Remember, we are made in the image and likeness of God. When we say the creed, we profess that which we are supposed to be ourselves. In other words, when we say the creed, we should be seeing in it our own lives. How different that is than compared to, like you're saying, most of the time in the church where we're just saying these promises, formula over and over again. Not at all the intention of what we're supposed to be doing in the church. The intention is to be putting before our eyes, in, in some sense, at that mirror to look and say, am I living my life according to that? And what is that that we're looking at? What is the thing we're supposed to be seeing in the mirror? What is the thing, what is the picture that we're looking at? That God. Okay, yes. Give me more. What's that? Is it simply the three persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The whole salvation. The union of God, the Trinitarian life, the Trinitarian relationship. What is the Trinitarian life? Okay, so it's an inner life of mutual love and self-giving. Which okay, stop, 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 don't go, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Repeat it again. It's a mutual love of um, total self-giving. Okay. From all eternity, the Father has poured his life out into the Son, and the Son has given his life to the Father and the Holy Spirit. From all eternity, God lives a life of love. It's not some nice little thing that Jesus says God is love in the Gospels. He means it. That from all eternity, that which defines God is a giving of self. So far, again, far from being simply a number of propositions or formulas that we're supposed to adhere to, when we look into the creed, we should see the life of God himself alive. Not just stagnant persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Father who gives forth to the Son. Okay, 
day, the Son who then gives his life back to the Father and the Holy Spirit. So it's a very much seeing the creed as the living God. Does that make sense, Concepcion? Mm-hmm. All right. Every once in a while I get these people in my class. I had this one lady, this one girl that, in Christendom that used to give me, I did Bible studies back then, and when I was at Christendom, and she would look at me like this. <laughs> That's the way she focused, but it scared me. <laughs> All right. I'm not saying that's what you do. I'm just saying some people's face, I want to make sure they get it. Catechism, paragraph one. Paragraph one. How many times have we looked at this one together? I think it's important. Paragraph one, sentence one. Concepcion, read that, the first sentence. I don't us. even know where you are. How can oh. I read it? I'm oh, trying to figure this out. Sorry, who's got it there? <laughs> okay, go ahead. All right, God infinitely perfect and blessed himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share his own blessed life. Okay, hold on, we're going too fast. Paragraph one. Look at your paragraphs. You see those bold numbers? Not the uh, not Roman numeral one. Paragraph one. All right, go read us that first sentence again. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. Okay, so he made man, for what reason? To make him share in his own blessed life. Okay, so notice who God is from all eternity, and what man is destined to do, what he was made to do are the same thing. From all eternity, God has been sharing his own blessed life. And so man now, made in his image and likeness, is meant to share in God's own blessed life. That is, I've said this before to you guys, if you're bored of it, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to stop saying it, because that is the fundamental key to the Catholic faith. And it's the fundamental key to the sacraments. Every sacrament is about the same thing. And I'm sorry it's going to be a little bit boring for you on that front, but I'm not going to say very much different about all the sacraments. They're all about the same thing. Right? What would you like me to write on the board? What would you repeat? Then he made us to share. You're not going to read my hand right now. That's a problem. In his own blessed life. Right, the answer to the question is, why is there creation? What question did I ask? No, no, that's the answer. Right? The answer to the question, I mean, yes, everyone ponders it, right? Why is there creation? Why is there intelligent being? Well, isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve? I mean, he wanted, he made them for that, and the devil simply came and tried to get them to steal from God what he wanted to freely give them. Exactly. That is the plan of God in the beginning. It's the plan of God for Moses. It's the plan of God for Elijah. It's the plan of God for every single human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth, and it's the same plan as he has for us today. When we receive the Eucharist, what do we receive? His own blessed life. When I go and confess my sins, and the priest absolves me of my sins, what do I receive? When I'm anointed as a sick person, what do I receive? I don't have to go over it the whole time. You see my point? 
The seven sacraments are seven avenues, if you will, by which God communicates the same reality to us. In some sense, it's like that love relationship between a husband and wife where, yeah, I could simply get up every morning and say to my wife, I love you, honey, and walk out the door. And that's all I said to her all day. But we're not made that way. She's got to know that I love her all through the day in all the different aspects of, my, of our life together. And that's how God has planned to communicate his life to us in the seven sacraments. Let's finish that paragraph then, or start it over again and uh, read it through a couple. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in the plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin, into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son as Redeemer and Savior. In his Son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children, and thus heirs of his blessed life. Okay. So notice that right down the middle of the paragraph comes the point about the church. That God, infinitely imperfect in himself, sought to share his own blessed life and the fullness of that gift was the giving of his own son. That in the son, he might draw all humanity, divided as it was, to bring them all together as one into what we call the body of Christ, the church. And within that body then, to make man live, to share his own blessed life. The seven sacraments, I like to think of them as we, St. Paul likes to use the analogy of the body of Christ for the church. The seven sacraments are kind of like seven arteries flowing through the body. Okay, if you got my email, I said, what did I say? The blood life of the body of Christ or something like that. It's not so much that the seven sacraments are the blood. And what's the blood? Grace. Grace, or the life of God, right? When you use those words, grace, just think, always think, life of God, the life of God, and the life of God is eternal. When we receive the life of God, we live forever. The seven sacraments are those portals, or those arteries by which God sends his grace or his life into our lives. It's now our goal to open our hearts so that we can receive that gift of life, that we can become attached, if you will, to that artery. Okay? One key aspect of that, then, is the point about in the Son. That when God shares his life with us, it is not, in a sense, I, how can I say it? It's not so much that Jesus Christ came and did this great thing for us, and therefore now, 2,000 years later, he gives us certain favors or certain gifts. Because God was pleased with Jesus 2,000 years ago, not at all. The great gift which Jesus Christ gave us is to allow us to become a participant in who he is. In the body of Christ. So that when, Christ, when, when the Father looks upon us, he sees his Son. Okay? 
turn your catechism to paragraph 260. Paragraph 260. Yeah, I'll never do page numbers on you guys because we have different paginations. 260. You with us, Sarah? Paragraph 260. All right, Bill, go ahead. The ultimate end of the whole divine economy is the entry of God's creatures into the perfect unity of the blessed trinity. But even now, we are called to be a dwelling place for the most holy trinity. If a man loves me, says the Lord, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What was the greatest command that Christ gave us? He says, the whole law is summed up in this. It's not by accident. It's not a nicety of Jesus, our, um, our uh, hippie, right? Oh, let's just all have peace and love. Not at all. Is that Christ is simply applying the reality of who God is and saying, that's what you have to do if you're going to share in his life. The ultimate end of the whole divine economy. When it says divine economy, read divine plan. Which repeats the words of paragraph one, doesn't it? God infinitely... What is it? Infinitely perfect in himself in a plan of sheer goodness. God's plan. The the ultimate end of the whole divine plan is the entry of God's creatures into the perfect unity of the blessed trinity. And now with the gift of Jesus Christ, when we enter into into the life of the trinity, we stand in the shoes of the Son. We receive from the Father, and we give our life back to Him in the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah. The word economy here is yes. actually translated as the household management. Yes, from the Greek. Actually, the law of household management. Yes. Yeah. So how is he dealing with his household? What is his plan for this system, right? Or this whole thing we call creation. And it's simply that. That the whole of creation, it's not just man. The whole of creation becomes, and this is key for our series around the sacraments, that the whole of the created order is to become a participant in the life of God. That everything is to communicate the life of God to us. The Catholic Church isn't crazy when it has things like sacramentals. The whole created order is supposed to be sacramental. The whole created order is to shine with the life of God so that no matter what we touch or what we look at, we see God. And if we don't, it is our goal to transform that thing to reflect God himself for other people. Okay? It's this reality, this placement within the life of the Trinity, then, that is the foundation for the liturgy. And I bring up the liturgy because the liturgy is not just the Mass, but ultimately the whole of the seven sacraments, the whole of the sacramental system including the praying of the office, our prayer life. 
the liturgy is ultimately Christ's gift of himself to the Father. And the greatest gift of Christ to the Father is what? What is the ultimate action or the moment when we can say that Christ gave himself fully to the Father? The cross. Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. His whole paschal mystery. It is that gift of self of Christ to the Father that constitutes the whole of the liturgical life of the church. Our whole liturgical life, in a sense, participates in that one moment of Christ. Turn to paragraph 1067. We're, the reason we're skipping so many is we've got to get to the section of the sacraments here. We've already done all the rest of this. You guys remember all this, right? This is all review up to this point. Now we begin to stop. When you say that, the thing that I like to remember is somebody saying, so you have the word representation, mm -hmm. but you can also read that as re-presentation. Right. Presenting again. Right. All right, 1067. You guys there? Mark, you want to read that for us? The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were by prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. Okay, stop for just a second. We'll read that a little slower. The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament. Notice, that simply speaks of the things God has done for his people. Right? And then look what it says. The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. Notice the two actions there. So the action of God towards his people is simply the beginning of the prelude to the ultimate act of turning that whole thing around and Christ giving himself back and all of creation in perfect glory to God. Okay, keep going, Mark. He accomplished his work principally by the paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and glorious ascension. Whereby dying he destroyed our death, rising he restored our life. For it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the, run, the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. For this reason, the church celebrates in the liturgy above all the paschal mystery by which Christ accomplished the work of our salvation. Cardinal Ratzinger likes to talk about this, this ministry, and uh, I know Stuart Mark at least bring our series on on the Mass, on Spirit of the Liturgy, but he likes to talk to it, talk about it in terms of exitus and reditus, just fancy ways of saying exit and return. That God, in an act of sheer goodness and freedom, poured forth his life in creation. And the culmination of the creation was the creation of Christ. Of man. And man was made from all eternity to reflect this very action. And so he was made to take everything he had received in a plan of sheer goodness freely 
to give everything back to God. That's the Trinitarian life right there. The, yeah, the, the, exactly. It mirrors exactly what Exactly. And notice what the Catechism is saying. This happens most perfectly in the Paschal Mystery. And Cardinal Ratzinger in his book Spirit of the Liturgy says it's right here that when man on the Sabbath day is meant to turn and give everything back to God, that he turns away. And it is Christ who comes to take the lost sheep on his shoulders and carry us back home to do with us what we could no longer do on our own. And the reason we could no longer do it on our own, by the way, is simply this. That man had received from God God's own life. When he fell, he cast that life aside. He refused that life. And when he threw that life aside, he no longer had that which was required of him in return. I just say required, I don't like that so much. But no longer could man stand on that equal plane with God. God had given this gift to him, and the only thing proper to do with it was to turn back and say, Lord, I received everything from you. Everything I have is yours. To stand there with open hands and worship him in love. To give that which he had received back to the one who he had received it from. But he refused that and threw off that great gift. He lost sanctifying grace. And so he then stood, in a sense, naked, and no matter what he did, his open hands were simply the open hands of a natural human being, no longer supernatural in the eyes of God, no longer having in his hands that precious life which God had given him. It is that life which Christ came to give us back. And so he takes us and returns us to the Father. And notice, the Paschal mystery is not simply the crucifixion. It is the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. That Christ takes us out of the tomb and gives to our human nature life again. A participation in his own blessed life. Okay? Does this make sense? Is this being recorded? Yes, it is. It's not that good. Well, it's good because it's, it's the thing. Yeah, there it is. Okay, 1085. 1085. Go ahead, Henry. In the liturgy of the church, it is principally his own compensable mystery that Christ signifies and makes present. During his earthly life, Jesus announced his pastoral mystery by his teaching and anticipated by his actions. When his hour comes, lives out the unique event of history, which does not pass away. Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, once for all. This pastoral mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. All of the historical events happen once, and then pass away, swallowed up in the past. The pastoral mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past, because by his death, he destroyed death, and all that Christ is, all that he did, and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity, and so transcends all time, being made present in them all. The event of the cross and resurrection abides and draws everything toward life. 
Okay, I can't say how, or I can't, can't force the public to know how, how important that point is. All that he did and suffered for all men participates in the divine eternity. When Christ walked upon the earth, he walked as a man, but he also walked as God. Whatever he did as a man is drawn up into the eternal life of God. So that it is made present in the once for all reality, the eternal now of God. Yeah, or rather, we walk with him. Because it's in, in Christ, it is our humanity that is taken up into the eternal life of God, into the divine life. And now, because of the mystery of God's eternity, whatever Christ did on this earth can be made present forever. Say forever because that talks about time. But whenever man comes into contact with God, he comes into contact with the mystery of the life of Jesus Christ. That life then becomes our salvation. Not because it took place 2,000 years ago, but because it is made present today for all men. The apostles had nothing on us. In a sense, they did. But in the sacramental economy, in the sacramental plan of God, he makes it possible for us to enter into the divine life. To stand with Christ on the Jordan River. To sit at the table of the Last Supper. Not taking place 2,000 years ago, but taking place and made present today. You like that stuff, Bill? Yeah. Sorry, you got excited. I did because I thought about, you know, I've heard this say, you know, Christ remains ever transfixed in that moment on the cross itself offering to the Father. <laughs> right? Okay, so that's why, because his life, right, is dual nature in time, but also in eternity. That's right. Okay. All right, 1092. Fulfills what is prefigured in the Old Covenant. 
Cardinal Jean Daniel, though. I don't know that I've recommended this book, well, maybe a long time ago, but I, I do recommend it to you. Cardinal Daniel, The Bible and the Liturgy. You can probably order it off online somehow. It says, The sacraments carry on in our midst the memory of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. The flood, the passion, and the baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. What's he saying? That when Christ in his humanity takes what he has done up into the life of God, or I should say, when God becomes incarnate in Christ, that what God has done from all eternity and what God has done in creation is simply made present in a fuller way. For God does not change. The one now of God, the eternal now of God, is made present in Christ. So that when God acts to save man in the flood, or in the baptism of Christ, or in the passion, or in the crossing of the Red Sea, these actions are the same action being spread across time. The same divine activity is carried out in three different eras of sacred history. He goes on, he says, For the fact is that the life of, ancient, of, the ancient, of ancient Christianity was centered around worship, and worship was not considered to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. Notice, and this is not so much my point, but notice how different that is compared to how we think of it. <laughs> worship was not considered for early Christians to, to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. Isn't that how we look at it today? That our regular life is made holy by, by receiving the sacraments? He says, that's not how the early Christians looked at it. The sacraments were thought of as the essential events of Christian existence. In other words, the idea of secular life, it wasn't even there. You had one life, and it was the life of Christ. The sacraments were thought of as the essential events of the Christian existence and of existence itself as being, and here's the point that I want to get to, as being the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. The sacraments are the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. In other words... When I enter into baptism, I walk through the Red Sea with Moses and Israel. When Noah went through the flood, and sinful man was buried and died in the flood, 
He entered into the one saving act of God, and it is that same act which I enter into, and you enter into, and my child entered into at the day of their baptism. Does that make sense? It's a little bit hard to grasp, but it's absolutely essential when we start to talk about the sacraments themselves and the rites that we do, the actions which we do in the, in the sacraments. Because they are totally, 100% determined by the men that have gone before us. What we do in the sacraments is determined by what Moses did at the crossing of the Red Sea. And if we had eyes to see, we would see before us when a child is baptized, not some nice little event that we want to take pictures of. I mean, that's nice and all. But to see the reality of the devil and slavery and Pharaoh struck down and buried in the Red Sea and Israel walking through the waters with 40 foot and 50 foot high walls of water on both sides. You want to talk about faith? I, I, I wish I could find the quote. There was a, a Protestant scholar I was reading once that one of the few biblical scholars actually believes that Moses crossed the Red Sea and they actually, it was a miracle that took place. And he says, if they crossed this, he was talking about the geography and where they may have crossed. And some will say they crossed it, you've heard the, the Reed Sea, where the water is actually like only up to your ankles, right? He says, rather, and he points to geographical points, he says, if they crossed at this other point, which seems more, more proper, they would have been walking through the full depth of the Red Sea with 100-foot walls of water on both sides. Faith? Go walk through that. And that's what happens in our baptism. Yes? I don't want to think about baptism, but I was on boat, people, myself, across the South China Sea, the Pacific Ocean. Nice yeah. At one point, the only thing that I see in the rough sea is a one little line of skyline. There's all the water. There's one, one line. Oh. And that's all I see. Mm -hmm. five days. Mm -hmm. Scary. But, so I, I can relate it to what is said. But yeah. it's true in, in, in the sea. And the tragedy is when we lose that, when we lose that in the sacraments, and they become for us kind of almost like playthings, right? Or, well, that's just what the priest does up there. Not at all. Not at all. Everything we do in the sacramental life is determined by the great works of God through salvation history. They tell us the truth of what's taking place in the sacraments. Okay, 1094. It is on this harmony of the two testaments that the Paschal Catechesis of the Lord's Bill, and then that of the Apostles and the Fathers of the Church. This Catechesis unveils what lay hidden under the letter of the Old Testament, the mystery of Christ. It is called typological because it reveals the newness of Christ on the basis of the figures, types, which announce it in the deeds, words, and symbols of the first covenant. By this rereading in the spirit of truth, starting from Christ, the figures are unveiled. Thus the flood and Noah's Ark prefigured salvation by baptism, as did the cloud and the crossing of the Red Sea. Water from the rock was the 
figure of the spiritual gifts of Christ and manna in the desert prefigure the Eucharist, the two bread from heaven. Cardinal Daniel says, because they are not understood, the rites of the sacraments often seem to the faithful to be artificial and sometimes even shocking. It is only by discovering their meaning that the value of these rites will once more be appreciated. This symbolism is not subject to the whims of each interpreter. It constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age. And what is striking about this tradition is its biblical character. Whether we read the instructions concerning the sacraments or look at the paintings in the catacombs, we are struck at once by figures taken from the Holy Scriptures, Adam in paradise, Noah in the ark, Moses crossing the Red Sea. These are images used for the sacraments. It is then the meaning and the origin of this biblical symbolism that we must first make clear. That the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the New is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science of similitudes between the two testaments is called typology. And here we would do well to remind ourselves of its foundation. For this is to be found in the Old Testament itself. At the time of the captivity, the prophets announced to the people of Israel that in the future God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those he had performed in the past. So, he says, the problem is that we do not understand the rites. We don't see them in their proper biblical background. And therefore, there's, he doesn't say this exactly, but we end up, the result is, we end up creating a theology based upon our vision from 2008. What's that look like to me? And therefore, that must be what it means. Okay? Thus, confirmation being the, basically the Catholic bar mitzvah. Right? It becomes my choice when I become old enough to make the choice for Christ. Has absolutely nothing to do with the Catholic faith whatsoever. That now confirmation is my becoming an adult in the faith, not the Catholic faith whatsoever. That's what we've been told a lot of times, because we end up building a theology disconnected from sacred scripture and disconnected from its roots in the fathers. So our goal as we go through the sacraments is to start to see, to start to form our, our mind so that when we're looking at the sacraments, we're asking ourselves the right questions. Not what does it look like to me today, and unfortunately, sometimes the way the sacraments are performed do not help the situation at all. But what did it look like and what did it mean to the early Christians? What did it mean to Jesus Christ when he went down to the Jordan River and was baptized by John? Father Gruber's book this weekend, you know, came here and spoke, and he made an interesting point that we, we think of water as this life-giving, this, you know, this, this beautiful thing that gives us life, and we think of it very differently than they did in Israel, that water was, was a thing that was like that. The Sea of Galilee was very rough, you know, the floods, whenever it rained, it flooded, and it was a very scary thing for them. So when they went and got baptized, in the river, when they went to the river, this was not a, uh, a fun thing for them. It was Scary. These are people that had to cross the Red Sea. These are people that knew the story of Noah. 
These are people that knew that in the sea, death took place, and very few people ever escaped from it. Yeah, that's a foundational. And Father Gruber's making that point because he knows the church fathers well. Okay? Uh, paragraph 1125. That's why I was so happy to have him here. He's just a master when it comes to scripture. 1125. Concepcion, are you there? No, I'm struggling. Oh, that's right. Do you, okay, do you, know, you understand the system, yes. though, yes. right? Okay, all right. Henry? 1125. For this reason, no sacramental right may be modified or manipulated at the will of the minister of the community. Of the supreme authority in the church may not change the liturgy arbitrarily, but only in the obedience of faith and the religious respect of the mystery. Okay, so I just have to read that there for you because it's helpful to us. Because when we start, we we, we got to stop looking at the liturgy as something that is ours to fool with, right? The marriage ceremony. Here's how I want my marriage to go. Yeah, right. the, the last thing that should ever be asked. Right. The marriage ceremony is laid down for us for not 2,000 years, 7, 8,000, 10,000 years from the time of Adam. And it is that which, which is the foundation for what we do now. And when we disconnect ourselves from that, we disconnect ourselves from the reality, or we call, we make, we we call into question the reality of the of the faith itself. So rather than fool with the right, our goal should be to fool with our vision, right? To get our vision in line. What did it mean to Christ and the apostles? And if I can figure that out, I can figure out what the sacrament is supposed to mean today. Okay. 11.27. Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they synchronize. They are, wow, I'm sitting there. Efficacious. Because in them, Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, and he who acts in the sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. The Father always hears the prayer of his son's church, which in the epithesis of each sacrament expresses her faith in the power of the Spirit. As fire transforms into itself everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit transforms into the divine life, whatever is subjected to, it, to his power. Okay. They are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in his sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. So when you, uh, many of you have heard, I'm sure, that the priest at the altar stands in persona Christi. Not just at the altar. When the priest is standing in the baptismal font, it is Jesus Christ who is reaching down into the Jordan River. He, it is he who is going down into the tomb. We'll talk about the tomb and that kind of stuff later. But it is Christ acting. 2,000 years ago, made eternally present in God, and it is we who are now entering into that mystery. Yes, it took place in history. 
2,000 years ago, but it has been present in history, or represented in history, ever since. What's the definition of the word epiclesis? Um, the uh, Greek. Epi is, is above or over. Um, um, so when the math right, the epiclesis is a, when the priest winds his hands, it's, it's calling down, it. down the Holy Spirit, but I, I always mess up the yeah. So I didn't realize that each sacrament had an epiclesis. Yes. Okay. Right, because every sacrament is the gift of the Spirit of God, the gift of the life so it's of God. The indication of the Holy Spirit. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. But the most important point you get from this is that no matter what sacrament we're talking about, when the priest stands there and does it, it is Christ acting. Okay. And how is that possible? Except for the one mystery which has been from the beginning and will remain to the end, and that it is his plan to make a share in his own blessed life. Now in marriage, we're the ministers, right? So we exactly. stand in right. his... Exactly. Exactly. And, they, and this is the exact point of why St. Paul talks about in marriage the head and body relationship. And then he turns around and he says, the head of Christ is God. Because now we are standing in the midst of the Holy Trinity itself. Right? So I shouldn't say just the priest. Whatever the minister in the sacrament is, whoever it is, is acting by virtue of Christ acting. Otherwise, it would not be salvific for us. Okay? It would not be efficacious. Because it is Christ alone who has the gift of, of eternal life. It is but, He alone that can give that gift. But if the minister chooses to change the rights, right, the gift is still... I'm not going to get into that, but let's move on. Okay. All right. <laughs> we can talk about that another time. Okay. Um, okay. 11.45. We're getting close to baptism. Look at this. Hey, what do you know? We might even say something about baptism. <laughs> A sacramental celebration is woven from signs and symbols in keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation. Their meaning is rooted in the work of creation and in human culture, specified by the events of the Old Covenant, and fully revealed in the person and the work of Christ. So when I say specified by the events of the Old Testament, it means, it means if I've got some water here, and I'm talking about the sacrament of baptism, that water is specified by what? It's, it's, I, can, I know what this water is by what? How do I know what the water is? And what it can do? Specified by the events of the Old Covenant. Which events, Henry? And what happened in the flood? Death was destroyed. Sin was destroyed. And man was saved. Mankind was saved. Fine. Whatever you want to say about the flood, that's going to tell me what this water can do for baptism. Do you see the point? Alright. So it's to our understanding of time. Uh, 11.48, I believe. 11.48. Inasmuch as they are creatures, these, the water, all these, the oil, all these things in, in, the, in the sacraments, inasmuch as they are creatures, these perceptible realities can become means of expressing the action of God who sanctifies men. Inasmuch as they are creatures, inasmuch as God himself has created them, they can now communicate God himself to us. And why is that? Because in everything that is created, something of the creator is imprinted upon it. Right? If I'm going to carve a statue, I first have to have it within me. 
right? And the statue then becomes the expression of what is first in me. So the creatures themselves become capable, in as much as they are creatures, of communicating God himself. In as much as they are creatures, these perceptual realities can become means of expressing the action of God, who sanctify, who makes men holy, who gives them their life, and the action of men who offer worship to God. The same is true of the signs and symbols taken from the social life, and so on and so on. Okay. 1149. The great religions of mankind witness, often imperceptible, thank you, in, whatever, to this cosmic and symbolic meaning of religious rites. The liturgy of the church presupposes, integrates, and sanctifies elements of creation and human culture, conferring on them the dignity of signs of grace of the new creation in Jesus Christ. So notice that in the sacraments, created elements begin to do what God had planned for them to do from all eternity. In Jesus Christ, the whole created order starts to be restored so that it now can do what it was supposed to do, namely communicate the life of God. <coughs> and that's not just man. That is the tree, and the piece of bread, and the water. Water was made that we could be baptized in it. Bread was made that we could receive the life of God. That's its ultimate meaning. That's what God made it for. Everything else is simply related to that. Bread uh, is nutritious for me. It sustains my natural life. Is a fallout, if you will, or is a, is a, is a, a secondary aspect of the fact that it is supposed to maintain or communicate to me my divine life, God's divine life. Okay, twelve, twelve, sacrament of baptism. Woo, look at that, we're out of time. Okay, let's just do one little thing about baptism, and I'm going to come back and uh, and. Bring it back together next time. The sacraments, 12-12. The sacraments of Christian initiation, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, lay the foundation of every Christian life. Notice what they say. The sharing in the divine nature given to men through the grace of Christ bears a certain likeness to the origin, development, and nourishment of natural life. It's the same. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, what are they all about? Sharing in the divine nature. Sharing in his own blessed life. Same thing. The faithful are born anew by baptism, strengthened by sacrament of confirmation, and receive in the Eucharist the food of eternal life. By means of these sacraments of Christian initiation, they thus receive in increasing measure, in increasing measure, the treasure of the divine life and advance toward the perfection of charity. I'll just say two quick things. First of all, baptism. If I want to know what baptism is all about, where do I look? said it already a couple times. Where do I look? Noah's Ark. Before the Noah's Ark, where can I look? Creation of the world. Okay, why the creation of the world? Created the waters and the earth and the sky and the waters. Exactly. And he parted those waters and dry ground came forth and he formed man upon that dry ground, didn't he? Right? Hovering over those waters, the Spirit of God. So that when man was formed and came and stood upon the dry ground, he was clothed in the grace of God. 
It's no accident, friends, that we put on a white robe right after baptism. Because when that child comes out of those waters into the new creation, he immediately stands in the presence of the Spirit of God and receives, as the Father said, the robe of glory that Adam threw off at the fall. The Eucharist. If I want to understand the Eucharist, if I walk into the Catholic Church and I receive a piece of bread, or what appears to be a piece of bread, where do I want to look to understand what I'm receiving and what's happening in my life when I receive it? Good. Manna in the desert. Now what is that going to tell us about the Eucharist? It's nourishment. Fine, it's bread from heaven. It's nourishment. Why do we need nourishment? Where are we? In the wilderness. Good, we're in the desert. And where are we going? We're going to the promised land. It is that food which sustains us on our journey, which no other food could sustain us for that journey. Starving in the wilderness, we come to the church to receive that pledge of eternal life. That gift which prepares us for the gift which we're going to receive in paradise. In the promised land to come. Leaving behind us what? What did they leave behind? Sin and slavery. Right? Bondage to Pharaoh. And having been baptized in the Red Sea, they walked through the wilderness of this earth, receiving the Eucharist, receiving the life of God. St. Jerome says, says, that which Israel received in the Old Testament is no different than that which you receive in the church. Because it was God's action of salvation, his saving action, making pre- or becoming present on earth. Remember what Daniel said, the prolongation of the works of God throughout salvation history. When you come forward to receive the Eucharist, you stand with Moses at Sinai. You stand with Israel wandering in the desert. But it's more. I mean, it's salvific. Even Christ yeah. said, your, your forefathers received the man and yet they died. This is right. bread for a- No, absolutely. I don't want to... Yes, I'm just saying that St. Jerome goes so far as to say, that wasn't just ordinary bread, friends, because that saved them. And it didn't just save them in a natural way, because it brought them to the place where they could enter into communion with God. Okay? We're over time. I apologize for that. Um, I'll see you next week, and hopefully I'll be better, and we can can dive deeper into the mysteries of God and uh, all that good stuff. So next week, same time, same place. Homework? Yeah, you guys want homework? Uh, Read over the the section on the sacraments of initiation, which I know we're supposed to cover today. So it's that section right there. We're at it. Right? Exactly. Baptism. And I'll ask you a question. Why does the catechism list baptism, then chrismation or confirmation, and then the Eucharist, when most of the time Catholics receive baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation? All right? Let's conclude in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was, as it is, and